Merry Christmas. What's up? My name is Matt, lead pastor here at Rooftop. On Christmas, that is what we celebrate. Uh, The arrival of God to earth as our Emmanuel. I don't know if you've ever heard that before, but it's one of the things we talk about during Christmas. God is our Emmanuel. The word, the name, Emmanuel, in Hebrew, uh, means God with us. But where does that name, Emmanuel, come from? We sang those lyrics at the top of the service. O come, O come... Emmanuel. A lot of us have been singing those lyrics since we were kids. Why do we call Jesus the Emmanuel? Where does Jesus even get the name? The Gospel writer Matthew in the New Testament is actually the first one to call Jesus the Emmanuel. And he tells the story of Jesus as the Emmanuel in chapter one of his book. You probably know the story of Christmas, but just for posterity's sake, let me read it to you. It comes from Matthew chapter one. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, Do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child, and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. That's the Christmas story. At least it's recorded by Matthew. Uh, A young unmarried woman named Mary is found to be pregnant. Her fiancé, Joseph, discovers this and assumes it's because his future wife has been unfaithful. Instead of bringing her up on charges of adultery, though, he decides to just kind of quietly divorce her to spare the embarrassment of that. But then he is visited by an angel who tells him to make Mary his wife because this child is from God. He should name the baby Jesus, because Jesus means Savior, and this child will grow up to save the world from their sins. And then Matthew adds that little note at the very end of the story. He says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophets. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. But wait a second. They will call him Emmanuel? I thought the angel said to call him Jesus. Is his name also supposed to be Emmanuel? Is one of those like a middle name? It's like Jesus Emmanuel Christ? Or Emmanuel Jesus Christ? And, and, and where does this prophecy come from, by the way? The prophet. What prophet? And how exactly is this prophecy fulfilled? Well, this prophecy comes from the book of Isaiah. If you've been hanging out at Rooftop this year, you know that we've been studying the prophet Isaiah in a a very long study called Isaiah for Today. Now, Isaiah, if you don't know, was a Jewish prophet who lived eight centuries before Jesus in the nation of Judah. Judah was God's people, and God had called Judah to be a holy nation, a light to the world. Judah, though, did anything but that. They lived lives of idolatry and disobedience and immorality. God sent them prophets to warn them, hey, don't do that. 
but they ignored those prophets. So finally, God sends them one final prophet named Isaiah to warn them of their coming destruction at the hands of their enemies. Now, Isaiah, as we've learned, is a poet. So a lot of his book is just poetry. But Isaiah is also a prophet, which means he sees things in the future, even things he might not understand that much. And sprinkled throughout the book of Isaiah are glimpses of the future when God will arrive to rescue his people. And this prophecy about Emmanuel is one of those prophecies. And this Christmas Eve, I want to go back to Isaiah and look at these words, which Matthew says, eight centuries later, are fulfilled in the birth of Jesus to Mary and Joseph. That prophecy is actually part of a story in Isaiah. And I would bet you 20 bucks. It's not a story you've ever heard before. It's a story about a disobedient king, a very frustrated prophet, and an unnamed teenage girl, soon to be pregnant, standing nearby. The story comes from Isaiah chapter 7. Now, at this point in their history, the nation of Judah is under the leadership of a king named Ahaz. Ahaz, not a good king. He was not like his father Uzziah, who was a good king, or even his son Hezekiah, who was a good king. Ahaz disobeyed God, like, all the time. Ahaz even, get this, sacrificed his own children to pagan idols. Unfortunately, though, Ahaz was on the throne. At a crucial point in Judah's history, they were under attack. Judah was under attack from their brothers to the north, the nation of Israel. Now, you see... God's people had at one point in history been one big happy family until they had a a big civil war and a divorce. And they split Israel to the north and Judah to the south. Now Israel had buddied up with their other neighbors, the nation of Syria, and declared war on Judah, Isaiah's people. And King Judah down here in Judah... King Ahaz, down here in Judah, was feeling the heat. To stave off this threat, Ahaz of Judah was considering an alliance with the big kid on the block, the nation of Assyria. Different than Syria. Assyria. Don't get screwed up. Two nations. These days, nobody messed with Assyria. If Ahaz made an alliance with Assyria, he thought... Israel and Syria wouldn't bother him anymore. But making an alliance with Assyria would be a dangerous game. Judah would become a vassal state, owing money and people to this empire in exchange for their own security. We know the temptation here. When I was a kid, for example, you might be surprised to know this, but I was kind of a dork. I was not the fashionable super dork that you see standing before you now. Other kids made fun of me. Jerks like Jason Keel and Baron Hemenover. That's not Jason Keel and Baron Hemenover. That's a stock footage photo. I typed in two jerks. (laughs) (laughs) But there was an even bigger jerk on the playground other than Jason and Baron. There is always a bigger jerk on the playground, right? His name was Trent Hahn. That's not Trent Hahn. Another stock photo. Even bigger jerk. (laughs) 
If I agreed to be Trent's lackey, his servant, he, I knew, could protect me from the Jason and the barons of the world. Trent, Assyria, could guard me from Jason and Baron, Israel and Syria. It was a tempting option. Now, to be sure, I was never actually given the option. (laughs) But I would have been tempted to take it if it had been offered. Ahaz faced the same temptation. His advisors told him, take the deal. Ally with Syria, Assyria, against the threats of Israel and Syria in defense. God had other plans, though. You see, during much of Judah's history, God had been trying to convince his people to trust in him and him alone. He wanted them to believe that he could protect them. He was trying to get them convinced that you don't need military alliances. You don't need large armies. You just need me. Judah had ignored this advice, though, and made all sorts of unholy treaties with other nations, but still God persisted. And in Isaiah chapter 7, God sends the prophet Isaiah to remind Ahaz that he doesn't need any alliances. He doesn't need Assyria. As we read in the book, the Lord said to Ahaz, go out, the Lord said to Isaiah, go out and meet Ahaz, King Ahaz. Say to him, be careful, keep calm, don't be afraid. Do not lose heart because of these smoldering stubs of firewood. In other words, God says, Israel and Syria are nothing. You need not fear them. They are smoldering stubs. Their fire is practically out. In fact, in just a few years, those nations are going to be reduced to rubble, God says. Their days are numbered. You don't need an alliance with Trent Han or Assyria or anybody else against Jason Keel and Baron Hemenover. You just need to trust me. As Isaiah prophesied to the king, if you do not stand firm in your faith, you won't stand at all. So this was Ahaz's choice. Don't make the deal. Trust in me or perish. How does Ahaz respond to this? He ignores the prophet. He rejects his words, like we would expect from a wicked king. He says, Isaiah, not interested in anything you have to say. You're dismissed. What King Ahaz doesn't realize is that this seems to be the moment when God decides that he's done with Judah. This seems to be the moment when he gives up officially on his people. And Isaiah's next words to Ahaz are famous ones in the book. Here they are. Hear now, you house of David. That's the king's house, King Ahaz's house, the house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of men? Will you also try the patience of God? Therefore... The Lord will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Before the boy is 12 years old and knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. The Lord will bring on you and your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Israel broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. He will bring Trent Han. In other words, because you have rejected your last chance to trust in me for protection, not only will the lands of Israel and Syria be laid waste, but Judah's land will be laid waste too. Your land will be devastated. Your kingdom will be ruined. How will it be ruined? It will be ruined by Trent Han. It will be ruined by Assyria. The enemy that you're getting ready to partner up with will come in and tear you limb from limb. And this will happen soon, he says. How soon? Here's how soon. 
The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Before the boy is 12 years old and knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. Now, what? There's a virgin in this story? I didn't know there was a virgin in this story. What's happening here? What's happening here is that Isaiah points to a young unmarried girl, a virgin, standing nearby. And he says, this young virgin girl is going to eventually get married and have a child. He sees this in the future. He's having, she's going to have a child. She's going to name him Emmanuel. And before this young boy turns 12 years old, your enemies will have been devastated. And, here's the kicker, you'll be next. That's the prophecy. Before this unnamed young virgin girl gets married and gives birth to a son named Emmanuel, your enemies are going to be destroyed and you will be next because you have rejected your last chance. Uh, You should actually know that this is exactly how it plays out in history. Soon enough, Syria and Israel are overwhelmed by Assyrian military power. And in about another generation, Assyria turns its sights on Judah and destroys them too, despite their alliance. Jerusalem is destroyed. Ahaz, King Ahaz, could have avoided this, could have prevented this if he had listened to God and the prophet, but he refused to, and all God's people suffered. Now probably, you didn't know that this was the story of the Emmanuel prophecy. You thought it was just more simple. You probably thought that the prophet Isaiah looked forward to a time in the future when the Virgin Mary would give birth to a child and would call him Emmanuel. And then, As it were, you wondered why Mary didn't call him Emmanuel, like Isaiah said she was supposed to. Did she, like, goof that up or something? You probably didn't know that Isaiah's prophecy here was, at least on the surface, a short-term prophecy for his own people. But this is why we do Bible study. (laughs) To learn interesting things about God's word that are maybe different, but more interesting than what we thought. But it still leaves the question, How can Matthew, eight centuries later, say that the birth of Jesus fulfills this prophecy from way back when in the story of Isaiah? A prophecy that, frankly, looks like it's already been fulfilled. With the destruction of Syria, Israel, and Judah. I mean, that already happened. So what's left to be fulfilled? I mean, was Isaiah even making a prophecy about the arrival of Jesus? On the face of it, it doesn't look like it. He's making a short-term prophecy concerning his own people involving a young woman whose identity we don't even know. So how does Matthew figure that Isaiah is predicting the future arrival of the Son of God to earth? Well, if I were listening to me right now, I'd say, that's a good question, Pastor Matt. Like, what's the answer? Well, theories abound here, but here's what I think. And this is actually really important if you want to learn how to read the Bible. You see, when Jesus came to earth, he told his followers that he came in fulfillment of the Old Testament. The Old Testament is that portion of the Bible written before the arrival of Jesus. And the Old Testament is a collection of prophecies and stories and letters and poetry. It was written by ancient Jews, inspired by the Holy Spirit, looking eagerly for their Messiah to arrive. And Jesus said he came in fulfillment of that Old Testament. 
He told his disciples that. He told his followers that. I have come in fulfillment of the Old Testament. So realizing this, Jesus' followers looked back into the Old Testament with new glasses on. They read it with different eyes. And they realized that everything in the Old Testament is about Jesus in some way. Everything in the Old Testament is about Jesus somehow. So when the gospel writer Matthew is thinking about the Christmas story, he makes some connections. Think about it. What's the Christmas story about? It's about a young virgin named Mary giving birth to the Son of God, a God who is now with us. And what's the story of Isaiah 7 about? It's a prophecy about a young woman at the time of virgin who will eventually have a child she will name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now to be sure, that original child, that original child born to that original young woman is not actually God with us. That original child is just named God with us. It was an ordinary boy. But Matthew sees a greater significance in the story. Matthew realizes that Isaiah was prophesying something here and then later about a greater child born to an actual virgin. A child not just named God with us, but a child who actually was God with us. This is what Matthew means when he says that Christ fulfilled the prophecy from Isaiah. He gives it fuller meaning. He believes that God has placed these sorts of hints in the Old Testament story, which makes sense only when you look backwards. It's kind of like a good M. Night Shyamalan movie. You know who M. Night Shyamalan is? He made all sorts of great movies, like The Village, like Unbreakable, like The Sixth Sense, like Science. He made all sorts of great movies before he started making really stupid movies. And his great movies, here's what we love about M. M. Night Shyamalan's great movies. They always have some huge twist at the end. And he spends the entire movie teasing the twist. And once you know the twist, you look back and you see all the hints. Especially when you watch it again and again and again and again. You think, oh yeah, oh yeah, Bruce Willis wasn't actually talking to the boy's mother when they were sitting in the living room. That, he, he could have been dead. Or you think, yeah, that's what Mel Gibson's wife said when she was like dying while pinned to the tree. It makes sense now. Same thing here. The Bible is an M. Night Shyamalan movie. Matthew has seen the twist at the end. What's the twist? God came to earth as a virgin, or through a virgin. God came to earth as a little child, and now it makes sense. God had been teasing it the whole time. God had been laying down hints, images, pictures, predictions, and here in Isaiah 7, the hint is a prophecy of a baby who would be born to a young woman at the time of virgin who would be named Emmanuel, God with us. That meant something to Judah, and now it means something more to Matthew. And to us. What does it mean? Well, that's the question. Here at Rooftop, we like to ask the so what question. Uh, we like to learn really interesting things about the Bible, that, but we also like to learn about those things in a way that helps us understand so what? So what do they mean for how we live our lives? So what about Emmanuel? What does it mean that God predicted the arrival of his son to earth through this prophecy in Isaiah 7, centuries before he came? Well, let's go back to the story. 
The story of King Ahaz has something to teach us. The prophet's words to Ahaz are still his words to us. You see, what was Ahaz's problem? Ahaz was afraid. Ahaz was afraid that his enemies were going to destroy him, so he was tempted to make an alliance with another enemy, a bigger bully that didn't have his best interest at heart, an alliance he would later come to regret. The prophet's words to him were simple. Don't worry about your enemies. Trust in me. As he said, be careful, keep calm, and don't be afraid. Don't let those smoldering stubs scare you into stupidity. They won't last. You don't need Assyria. In fact, I actually like the literal Hebrew Hebrew translation of this verse. The literal translation of this verse is this. Be careful to do nothing. That's what God was telling Ahaz. Be careful to do nothing. I know it's tempting to make an alliance with Trent Han, but don't do it. Be careful to do nothing. Why do nothing? Because God was with them. God was Emmanuel. Let God be in charge of this battle. The more you try to do here, the more you're just going to muck it up. This is something we need to understand too. You see, there are times when we get ourselves into trouble. We feel threatened by jerks, by situations, by Jason Keels and Baron Hemenovers. We're up against all sorts of scary, intimidating situations. We might not actually be threatened by jerks, but by jerky situations. And when that happens, we're tempted to do all kinds of stupid things and make alliances with bullies we shouldn't. What am I talking about? Well, when we get behind in rent, for example, we're tempted to make alliances with credit cards or take out loans we shouldn't get. When our marriage starts failing, We're tempted to form a friendship, an alliance with a new lover who promises to take us away from all those difficulties. When our country starts heading in the wrong direction, we're tempted to make an alliance with politicians and political parties who aren't good for us, bullies. When we feel lonely at home, we're tempted to make an alliance with a man or a woman who's not that good for us, really. They just promise to protect us from loneliness. When we're feeling stressed from a long day at work, we're tempted to make an alliance with porn or alcohol or food or TV, hoping they distract us from our enemies for at least a little while. These are our Assyrias, our Trents, that we make alliances with because we're scared of Jason. We're scared of Baron. To be honest, that last one, that's my alliance. Mindless entertainment. After a long day at the office with sometimes very frustrating conversations and difficult decisions, I don't want to think about anything for a while when I get home. So when I get home, I'll make an alliance with the TV. Distract me with mindless entertainment. It might not even be good for me. It might not even be redeeming. I don't even, don't even care. Show me something else. And if my family gets between me and the television, things might not go well for them. That's my alliance. What's yours? Those alliances don't work, though. They come back to bite us. I mean, how many times have we learned this? Does overeating really make you feel better about yourself? Do politicians really help us? Does dating the wrong guy really help your loneliness? Does Netflix really fix your boredom? We don't need these alliances. They can't do anything for us, at least anything that matters. We only need 
God. We only need to trust in him. We only need to have faith that he can rescue us from our enemies, including death and disease. Now, this doesn't mean that our lives will be perfect. It doesn't mean that we won't get sick or suffer or struggle. Sometimes the exact opposite is true for God's people. Sometimes God's people struggle more than average folk. But what can we be sure of in the midst of those difficulties? We can be sure of Emmanuel. We can be sure that God is with us. God is with us, giving us strength to carry on. God is with us, making the most of our difficult situations. God is with us, ridding us of sin, making us better people. The same God who entered our world as a child through the womb of a virgin is still with us. He lives in our hearts. He plans out our steps. He inhabits our praise. So as you feel squeezed between bullies these days, be careful to do nothing. You don't need what you think you need. You don't need that credit card. You don't need that girlfriend. You don't need that bottle. You don't need that guru. You don't need that politician. You don't need that purchase. You only need God who came to earth to be with you. You need only have faith that he is here with you now. As a tiny child named Jesus or Emmanuel or both, who came to save us from our sins. That is what it means that Jesus fulfilled the words of the prophet. Let's pray. Father, my prayer is that that promise can be true in my life. I know that you are with me, sometimes in imperceptible ways. But I don't need to perceive your presence in order for it to be true. I don't even know if I need to know that you're with me in order for it to be true. You are just with me. You're with me by your spirit. You're with me in your church. You are with me in the Son of God who walked uh, walked these lands, who entered our world 2,000 years ago as a, as a tiny baby through the womb of, an, of a virgin. You are with us. I pray this Christmas that we can meditate on that and be made aware of it and believe it a little bit more deeply. Thank you for the story of Isaiah. The lesson here, the lesson that eight centuries before the arrival of your son, you were teasing it. You knew the twist. You knew where the story would go. You knew how the M. Night Shyamalan movie would end. And you were teasing it the whole time. Isaiah might not even have known how much you were teasing it. But now as we look back on how you interacted with your people, we see the signs, we see the prophecies, we see the hints, we see the tease. The tease that sometime in the future, at just the right time, you would enter our world through a virgin in a miraculous way and that you would be with us. That's what happened, you came to be with us. 
as we live our lives here on earth, as we continue to suffer and struggle through pandemics and violence and sin and death, decay, may we hold on to that promise brought into focus on Christmas that we worship a God who is with us. He is the God Emmanuel. You are the God Emmanuel. Thank you for this opportunity to give you the praise that you were due this evening. While I'm at it, I do want to thank you for all the volunteers who gave up so much to help out. It's a long day for them. We're grateful for their service and their sacrifice. You are worth all of that and more. We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, and by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.